Welcome to the Media Navigators podcast, brought to you by the World Media Group. My name is Belinda Barker, and I'm the Chief Executive. Today, I'm going to be sharing with you a conversation between two of our industry's great thinkers. That is Arif Durrani, who is the executive editor of Bloomberg Media Studios in EMEA, and is a well-known media and marketing commentator, having previously been the head of media at Campaign Magazine and the editor of Media Week for many years. Arif is going to be joined by Sue Uniman. Sue is the Chief Transformation Officer of Mediacom, a well-recognized industry voice and an active champion for diversity and inclusion in the workplace. With that, I'd like to hand you over to Arif. So, welcome Arif. Hello, and thank you, Belinda. Yes, I'm Arif Durrani, and it's great to be the host of the Media Navigators podcast today. And as you've heard, I'm joined by Sue Uniman, the Chief Transformation Officer of Mediacom in the UK. For those not so um, up to speed with media agency life, Mediacom is the biggest uh, media agency in terms of billings in the UK, part of WPB Group. Uh, hello, Sue. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, Sue, just by way of background, I should explain that you've been in the media business for more than 30 years, uh, beginning as a media buyer before really finding your feet as a media planner. And again, for those not so to speed on the media agency life, planning is where the message meets the people. It's really about the people, what makes them tick. Um, and that's leads us quite nicely into what we're talking about today, which is your new book called Belonging, written with your co-authors, Catherine Jacob and Mark Edwards. And it's, it's about belonging at work. It's called Belonging. And in your own words, maybe, Sue, so you can tell us what is your book about and why did you write it? Well, more than $8 billion a year is spent on diversity and inclusion initiatives. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's obviously a large amount of money and has been for the last few years. And yet the outcome of that expenditure seems to have been limited in terms of change. So the statistics about who's running companies, who's running business, particularly in certain sectors, I have to say, like law firms, like IT services, like um, financial services, it's, it, the makeup of those boards hasn't changed very much. The FTSE 100, there's less than a handful of women CEOs. There's um, very few black and minority ethnic CEOs on those boards. So there hasn't really been much change. And what we wanted to do was write a book that really tackled this head on. And it was our suspicion from a number of talks that we've given in the past. So um, my previous book, The Glass Wall, which is about gender diversity and belonging is about all forms of underrepresented um, uh, communities. But with the, the book about gender diversity, we gave over 150 talks at different sorts of businesses around the UK. And very often at the end of those talks, one of the women in the audience would look round and she'd say, I've got a question now, but not for Sue and Catherine, who I wrote the, that book with, but for the organisers of the talk. And, and they'd say, can I just ask where are all the men? And the organiser of the talk would say, well, this is really a talk for, for women. You know, it's about, about helping women. And she would then say, as I say, it's happened more than once. Well, how is anything going to change 
if we're only talking to ourselves. And as I think I've heard you express this, all too often diversity and inclusion initiatives end up being a bit of an echo chamber. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to understand what it is that actually gets diversity and inclusion efforts to be successful. And frankly, what it boils down to is that everybody in the business has a sense of belonging and that everybody in the business takes active responsibility for inclusion. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And I, I, th- I think that's a really important point to make for those who haven't read the book yet. This is, you're trying to break out of his echo chamber. I mean, you even have indeed a, a foreword from Duncan Edwards, um, former president of Hearst magazines, um, who admits that he's pale and male and, you know, privately educated, but, you know, he has to be part of the solution. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's quite an essential uh, undercurrent throughout the book. Um, and it's, it's had rave reviews, I think we, it's fair to say. I mean, Esquire magazine calls it the most important business book of the year. And Mark Thompson, the former CEO of New York Times, the former director general of the BBC as well, of course, calls it essential reading. So it's clearly hits a nerve and it's of the moment. Um, now, creating a sense of belonging should be a priority for any leader. Um, and this book is full of actual practical advice, you know, the strategies and tips at the end of each chapter. Maybe you can tell us a bit about how you landed on this format and what you hope to achieve with it. So based on the success of The Glass Wall, which was um, a bestseller, we wanted to base this around shared experiences and case studies because I think there's an awful lot of theory out there and people intellectually understand the theory and they even... They intellectually have read the surveys that say companies that have better diversity at senior levels have better profits, better returns, and yet still there isn't change. So what we wanted to do was make it very much about people's actual experiences. And we have acted as a conduit, if you like, for lots and lots of different sorts of of voices. We spoke to all kinds of different people, all sorts of different circumstances. But in addition, and this is perhaps where it's different from previous um, and other books, it's great to understand what you should do in theory. It's very different to put it into practice. And we didn't want to leave anybody just thinking, okay, I know I should say something in that situation without really talking them through step by step how you get to be able to do that in a successful and positive way. So there's lots of exercises and, and um, just examples, really. Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting because not only, for example, do you unearth things like the microaggressions, mm. um, but you also talk about positive affirmations and things which perhaps I know I haven't really come across before. Um, maybe, maybe tell us a bit about some of, some of that, that, those sorts of findings. So in a way, I, I suppose it's a good thing, but in a way it's, it's, a, it's a sad thing. The term microaggression has become much more common this year and people understand what it means and you know, pe- people have training in microaggressions, which is those tiny little gestures, frequently they may even be unconscious, whereby somebody in the team or somebody in the culture is made to feel that they don't belong, that they don't fit in. And then, honestly, the effect of that is really deep-rooted because it makes people lean back, step back, feel that they're out of a circle and they can't bring their best efforts into the workplace. But the woman that coined the term microaggressions at the same time actually coined the term microaffirmations, which are much much less well-known. 
And the idea of the micro affirmation is to make sure that every day, you know, frequently throughout the day, what you do is you make sure that everybody in your team or in your company feels included. And that might be about reaffirming something that somebody has said that you think is a good idea, but perhaps you feel it has been, you know, passed over or, or not listened to. It's about ensuring that you include everybody in the team friendly conversations. These things which have become much more important actually as well now that we're more and more working from home and doing video calls. But making sure that when it comes to, you know, what did you all get up to at the weekend, it doesn't leave out people who, you know, if most of the team have have kids, it doesn't leave out the people that, that don't have kids. If um, most of the team are planning on, um, you know, going to go going out for drinks back in the world, back in real life where things are normal, that it doesn't exclude those people that that happen not to drink or or either either for personal or, or religious reasons. And there's a, a I think there's a very important point about this, which is that we've come to assume that it's good for a business to have a good, strong cultural fit. And of course, culture is important, but a cultural fit implies that everybody's got to fit one type of culture. And what you really want is you want a belonging culture, which means that it expands to include all sorts of different people. Because you don't get the benefits of diversity if you've just brought people in who are different, but who don't feel like they fit in. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's why I really like the, the name of the book, Belonging. Um, you say it comes from Asif Sadiq, the head of diversity over at the Telegraph. Um, he says diversity is great, but really we need to get to belonging. And that will resonate. And also, I hope it will stop alienating certain fractions and fractions of, of the workforce. Um, you know, you begin with an analogy in your book, or, or actually as a story, but you change the names. Um, a, a case study from Peter who is a middle-aged white male who's always worked hard at his job and really enjoys it. New management comes in and he hopes he'll get on, as he always has done. And actually, uh, the new managing director is a, is a woman and has a, uh, a, a different agenda. And he's actually very soon uh, managed out of the business. And it's, it's a shame. And you feel for Peter and it becomes a statistic. And, and I think it does get to the heart. You begin with that, which is a brave case study to begin with. Because it gets to the heart of actually a fear within a certain um, sort of white male leadership um, contingent that they are being managed out. And actually, that is not the case at all. And you want to make it clear from the beginning that you don't see this as a zero-sum game. Maybe tell us a bit about your thinking around this. Yeah, and we spoke to more than one senior man um, who used the expression, it feels like a witch hunt out there. So it feels like um, if I do or say the wrong thing, my entire career is going to be in shreds, even even though I've performed up to this point. So there's a huge amount of anxiety out there, which is part of the reason why things haven't changed, because you have to have everybody involved in this. And in terms of a zero-sum game, I mean, you know, this is where the statistics come in. Those businesses that do better for diversity, so I think there's a McKinsey study, I know there's a McKinsey study that says that companies that are in the top quartile for diversity achieve returns of 35% better than other businesses. So it's a strategy for growth in terms of the business, but it's also, quite frankly, a strategy for growth in terms of your career, because 
as you know, if you surround yourself by people who are different from you, who are talented, who can bring something different, and if you champion those people, then your own career will, will progress as well. And, you know, to go back and use a, I suppose it's an old historical example, but when the um, head, we do mention it in the book, when the head of the Council of Physicians in America at the turn of the century, last century, in the, 19th, in the 20th century, made an announcement and said that 50% of the physicians in, in, in America would need to be women, should be women, should rightly be women. And that might mean that half of the men would have to give up their jobs. Well, that's absolutely not what happened because there were 20,000 physicians in those days. So now, yes, half the physicians in America are women, but it's been, it's been obviously a growth sector and that's true of many businesses as well, that if you see it as a zero-sum game, if you see it as this is the limit, then you're not bringing difference into your management and you, and, and you are less likely to grow. So it's sort of self-fulfilling downward spiral or you've got the choice of, a, of a, an upward spiral, a spiral for growth. Yeah, I really like how you, um, you, you try and build to the head and the heart. You have some really good sort of up-to-date research from the likes of McKinsey, which prove it. And it's, it, you know, I guess it's frustrating and it's still a point which needs to be proved, but, you know, um, everyone must be a champion of belonging. Um, I mean, how do you feel? I mean, obviously, this is a, an international media podcast. Um, our media fraternity, for me, it always strikes me as, as quite a diverse, eclectic and, and sort of welcoming bunch of individuals throughout the, the business. I don't know if that's, I mean, how, how do you feel it stacks up um, in your experience? I know it's mainly been the UK side you've worked on, but I'm sure you've had big global accounts like GSK and the like. Well, I can answer this in, in two ways. I mean, the first thing to say is that um, in, in the, there's, a, there's a, a fairly hideous statistic for me that comes out of the, the research that we did, fresh research that was done for us by Donata uh, for this book which is that um, around a third of people at work have experienced um, or witnessed harassment or inappropriate behaviour um, in the office. But that figure actually rises for people within the marketing and the PR community when it comes to witnessing that kind of thing. So it's, and, and, I, and I think in certain markets, I think in, in a, in America, that figure rises to 47% of um, people who work in marketing. So, you know, first of all, your personal experience might be great, Arif, but it's not everybody's personal experience out there. And um, there needs to be zero tolerance of that kind of behaviour. And I think anecdotally, what we know is that people will say, I feel as though exceptions are made for people because they perform in terms of sales or they perform in terms of, you know, um, getting a return on investment. And that means that their slightly borderline behaviour is, is put up with. And there has to be zero tolerance. I mean, you don't say of an aeroplane pilot, do you know what, he, he's really good at getting there on time, so we don't mind if he has the odd drink before he gets in the plane. You know, it's, 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 for me, it's, it's that serious. It has to be zero tolerance. And what we know is that only about half of people at work in the UK and in the US think that their leader takes personal responsibility for diversity and inclusion. 
So I do think there's a long way to go. What I do think on the upside is, is that we are a business that loves growth, that loves um, ideas, loves new things. And so if we can just change our standpoint so that we go from being inactive bystanders, and it just feels like there's too much of that, into being active bystanders or being active allies, then we can actually step change our industry in terms of diversity, inclusion and belonging, but also in terms of growth. And goodness knows this is a year where we all need to do that. Yeah, okay, very interesting. And I know your book makes the point that many men do feel weighed down by the expectations of how they should act. Um, I just worry that with that zero tolerance message, does that does that not then just heighten that worry? Should there not? We want what can we, should there be sort of compulsory training, which everyone now does? Because obviously people do get outdated. You know, the, the terminology of people who are fifty or six years old is not the terminology of today. Um, so there's um, we have we've we have done compulsory microaggressions training at Mediacom actually so in the UK so um, I see Kate Robinson introduced that and and we all went through it was very good it was very interesting but I think it's really important to say we are all on a journey and we stress that in the book the whole time that nobody is perfect nobody gets everything right all the time that there has to be a safe space for everybody and just as it's not at all right for anybody to make an inappropriate comment, it's also not all right for everybody to laugh at that person, but never actually tackle it head on with them. So we need more kindness, more acceptance. And I wonder whether, as well as microaggressions training, as in how to be an ally, how to look out for it, how to speak about it, whether we also need to train people in how to take that criticism as well so I've just come across the I I don't know if you know about this but um the epic training in um America which is um ethical policing is courageous is what it stands for and it was introduced actually by a holocaust survivor who is is now an elderly academic but he's spent his whole career studying violence and studying really what happens when people do stand up because his, his own personal experience was that he was, he was, his life was saved by um, bystanders, active bystanders. And the point that he makes is that you're trained in the police to deal with things in critical situations and to make sure that you, you know, if there's, that there's no, you know, if someone is under suspicion of carrying a, a weapon that, you know, you, you um, uh, neutralize that situation you're not trained in staging an intervention if you think one of your colleagues is overreacting. You're also not staged in uh, trained in taking that criticism in a panic situation if you are the person that's, that's you know, perhaps reacting inappropriately. And the thing is, is that when you're in a situation where you overhear something that you probably gut feel no isn't right or isn't appropriate, None of us get trained in how to stage that intervention normally. And also, none of us get trained at a senior level in making sure that you're open to that criticism. Now, by writing this book, we've opened ourselves up to that. And I've experienced it in some of the talks that we've given. 
And frankly, I'm not always going to get the language right because the language changes and it evolves and it is very important. But the crucial thing that I'd recommend to everybody is get yourself some buddies and some wingmen and some allies who are different from you, whoever you are, so that you can check in with them and make sure that you're as, you know, as much of a belonging champion as, as is possible to be. Yeah, that's, that's great thought and great words. And I, I, um, I know in the book you talk about the ability to promote a self-fixing culture, um, you know, active listening, um, and it all starts with self-awareness, of course. Um, so what would you like to come out from, from this book? You know, people who read this book, what, what would you like to be the take-home? What, you know, what are your hope? I would like them never to be a bystander again, never be an inactive bystander again. I think if we all pledge to always speak up for each other and always say something, then I think we get a different industry, you know, straight away. Um, you, do, you do highlight some really strong, empathetic leaders. Um, one in particular I like is Mo Molum, um, yeah. great example of inclusive leadership, and also to someone who brought her, her whole self, self to work. Maybe tell us why you chose Mo. Well, I, I met Mo once, actually, um, just after she'd written her book about um, getting different, you know, very hostile um, parties to work together in Northern Ireland. And she was kind of on a book tour and she came and gave a talk to um, our clients. She was just absolutely brilliant, very interesting, very charismatic. And the point is, is that she puts the issue above ego and personality. And by doing it so wholeheartedly, so there is a famous um, instance where she, you know, she, was, she was undergoing treatment of cancer and there was a famous instance where she was so fed up with the, you know, sort of stuck in the mud egos in the room that she took her wig off in kind of exasperation and threw it across the table. And and that just jolted everybody into remembering what was important in life and and prioritising the issue, not the people. And it's one of the things that um, Karen Blackett, who wrote the other foreword for the book, um, my long-term colleague, always says, which is hard on the issue, kind on the individual. And I think if we all remembered that, then again, we would get to a better place. People need to go, this isn't personal to me. It's about making our workplace a better one. And if the workplace is a better one, then actually, of course, everybody, including you, benefits. Yeah, really interesting. Thank you, Sue. Now, you mentioned Metmo, which is amazing. Um, so 2020 has been really difficult year where we haven't really been out and able to meet people I mean would you have been able to to even write this book in 2020 I presume most of your interviews uh, took place in 2019 yeah and we finished it in the summer so we were able to take account of what was going on we obviously didn't know how long it would be going on for at that point and perhaps we still even now don't I um yeah I I look I'm Uh, One of the great positives of the way in which we're working in a different way is actually that people in some ways have more time for each other because we're not caught up in the busyness, even the busyness of travel and getting from one place to another, but because we're not caught up in, in the busyness of meetings in quite the same way. 
And I know there's a lot of people that are suffering from endless video calls. And of course, I understand that. And I, and I miss people too. But people are very, very, you know, glad to talk, actually. Um, so it was an interesting process for the book. And, and in a way, we were lucky that our deadline was, uh, you know, the summer and not earlier because we were able to incorporate what was going on into our analysis and into our writing. And there are elements of the working from home experience and the more flexible working that are making the workplace more difficult for outliers. And I think it is absolutely vital and incumbent upon us as we, I think, know that the workplace isn't going to go back exactly to what it was, that we build in ways for people to increase their social capital without the traditional ways of doing it, which, by the way, were quite often unfair. You know, that I I came across somebody in the conversations for the book who said that his boss had said to him, look, mate, if you don't go to the pub, you're really not going to get promoted around here. And he just doesn't happen to drink very much. He likes coffee, not uh, beer. And the fact that in 2020, somebody in their in their 20s could hear that from their boss. That doesn't seem right to me. That sounds like something that should have gone out in the 1980s. So I think this is an interesting experience that we're going through a terrible experience in many ways but it gives us the opportunity to reimagine and rebuild the workplace in in a better way yeah yeah i agree well look sue many thanks for your time it's been a fascinating conversation as i knew it would be and um you know i urge everyone to um you know by belonging is available, I guess, in all these places where it's available. So is that, is that all, right? All yeah. good booksellers, yeah. Yeah, and online booksellers and all the rest of it. Um, but thank you for your time, Sue, as always. And uh, Merry Christmas and um, hope to see you in the new year. Yeah, hope to see you soon. Thanks very much, Aaron. The World Media Group is an alliance of leading international media organisations that connects brands with highly engaged, influential audiences in the context of trusted and renowned journalism. I'm delighted to have as members the Atlantic, BBC News Global, Bloomberg Media, Business Insider, The Economist, Forbes, Fortune, Financial Times, National Geographic, New York Times, Reuters, Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post. It is a great honour to work with all of them. Thank you.